Welcome to this E-Cystic Fibrosis Review Podcast, our fifth volume of this program. Today's discussion is a follow-up to our newsletter topic, Pseudomonas Eradication and Reinfection. Joining us today is that issue's author, Dr. Felix Ratchin, Division Chief of Respiratory Medicine at the Hospital for Sick Kids and Professor of Pediatrics at the University of Toronto and Toronto, Canada. E-Cystic Fibrosis Review is jointly presented by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. This program is supported by educational grants from AbbVie, Gilead Sciences, Inc., and Vertex Pharmaceuticals. Learning objectives for this audio program include explain the available options to treat early Pseudomonas aeruginosa infection, discuss whether treatment should be repeated in patients who develop recurrence of infection, and describe potential treatment options for patients failing eradication therapy. Dr. Ratchin has indicated that he has received grant funding from Novartis and has served as a consultant for Gilead Sciences. He has indicated that there would be no reference to unlabeled or unapproved uses of drugs or products in today's discussion. I'm Bob Busker. I'm managing editor of E-Cystic Fibrosis Review, and I want to thank you, Dr. Ratchin, for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me. In your newsletter issue, doctor, you reviewed recent publications describing protocol-based pseudomonas eradication strategies, the efficacy of both inhaled tobramycin and estreonam lysine, and new ways to evaluate pseudomonas infection and eradication success. Today, I'd like to discuss how that new information might impact practice in the clinic. Uh, so if you would, doctor, start us out by describing a patient. Okay, so the first patient we will discuss is a four-year-old female CF patient with first-ever positive pseudomonas aeruginosa culture detected at a routine clinic visit. Four years old, first-ever pseudomonas infection. How was her infection detected? Was it done by throat swab? Yes, it was done by throat swab, as it is commonly the case in this age group because patients at this age rarely produce any sputum. So this patient's first-ever infection, how should it be treated? Well, overall, we have learned over the years that treatment for first pseudomonas infection is beneficial. Therefore, a patient who has a positive culture should be treated, even in the absence of clinical symptoms. So just to reiterate that, we should not base our decisions to treat on whether or not symptoms are present, but whether or not pseudomonas is present. So if we have a positive culture, treatment should be initiated. And there are a number of treatment options. Based on your knowledge and experience, doctor, which treatment should be used and for how long? So we have a number of studies that have been done in the field, and based on those studies, inhaled tobramycin inhalation solution is the best studied option. And based on the knowledge that we have, 28 days of treatment is sufficient. We also have studies that have looked at whether adding ciprofloxacin to the treatment will have any added benefit and that is not the case. And so in essence, 28 days of inhaled tobramycin inhalation solution would be the first treatment of choice. After 28 days of inhaled tobramycin, uh, at what point should this patient be seen for follow-up? We recommend the follow-up to be done after cessation of treatment, and ideally this is done one week after therapy has been stopped. The reason for that is if patients are still on therapy, the cultures might be negative, despite the fact that pseudomonas is still present in the lower airways. So we recommend to do this one week after cessation of treatment. At that point, cultures should be repeated, and if negative, further follow-up should be planned. I want to ask you about the reliability of throat swabs to define infection. I know there's some controversy there. What are your thoughts on that? 
Well, throat swamps are not ideal in terms of predicting lower airway infection. And we have learned this from comparative studies where throat swamps have been compared to bronchoalveolar lavage, which is kind of our gold standard to define infection, or by comparing them to sputum in patients that are able to produce sputum. The bronchoalveolar lavage studies have shown us that while the positive predicted value of throat swaps is not ideal, the negative predicted value is relatively high. So what does that mean? It means that if a patient has a negative culture based on throat swap, it is unlikely that pseudomonas is present in the lower airways. On the other hand, if you have a positive culture, it doesn't necessarily mean that pseudomonas is always present in the lower airways as well. But if we want to follow our patients after eradication therapy, then having a negative culture has a relatively high predicted value that lower airway cultures will actually be negative. But again, it's just a single culture, and therefore we try to rely on more than one culture. And the way we do this is to perform multiple cultures rather than relying on one time point alone. Thank you for that case and that information, doctor. And we'll return to discuss pseudomonas eradication with Dr. Ratchin from the University of Toronto in just a moment. Hello, I'm Megan Ramsey, nurse practitioner and clinical coordinator for adults at the Johns Hopkins Cystic Fibrosis Program at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. I am one of the program directors of eCystic Fibrosis Review. These podcast programs will be provided on a regular basis to enable you to receive additional current, concise, peer-reviewed information through podcasting, a medium that is gaining wide acceptance throughout the medical community. In fact, today, there are over 5,000 medical podcasts. To receive credit for this educational activity and to review Hopkins policies, please go to our website at www. E-cysticfibrosisreview.org. This podcast is part of E-Cystic Fibrosis Review, a bi-monthly email-delivered program available by subscribing. Each issue reviews a current literature on focused topics important to clinicians caring for patients with cystic fibrosis. Continuing education credit for each newsletter and each podcast is provided by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine for Physicians and by the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing for Nurses. Subscription to E-Cystic Fibrosis Review is provided without charge, and nearly a 1,000 of our colleagues have already become subscribers. The topic-focused literature reviews help them keep up-to-date on issues critical to maintaining the quality of care for their patients. For more information, to register to receive E-Cystic Fibrosis Review without charge and to access back issues, please go to www.ecysticfibrosisreview.org. Welcome back to this E-Cystic Fibrosis Review podcast. I'm Bob Busker, Managing Editor of the program. Our topic is Pseudomonas aeruginosa Eradication and Reinfection, and our guest is Dr. Felix Ratchin from the Hospital for Sick Kids in the University of Toronto. We've been discussing how some of the new information Dr. Ratchin presented in his newsletter issue can inform clinical practice. Uh, so to continue, if you would, doctor, please bring us another patient. Okay, uh, so in this case, this is a six-year-old male patient with cystic fibrosis who had a past infection with pseudomonas at the age of five. And now at a routine clinic visit without any clinical symptoms, another positive culture is found for pseudomonas. So a successful eradication, and now it's a year later, there are no symptoms, but the culture is positive for pseudomonas again. 
Should treatment be initiated now, despite the absence of symptoms? Yes, is the short answer. From what we learned about first pseudomonas and early pseudomonas infection is that the second infection does not necessarily differ in terms of its impact, but also in terms of the success rate of eradication therapy. Having said that, it's important to clarify whether the patient actually, in the meantime, had negative cultures, because if you have cultures for less than a period of a year, it becomes problematic to say that the patient ever became pseudomonas negative. And that relates to the previous issue that we have discussed, that relying on one or two cultures alone to define the status of pseudomonas infection is not necessarily enough. But let's assume that there were multiple negative cultures and that this is likely a new infection. Treatment should be initiated again. What would you treat with? The same therapy or a different treatment from the initial therapy? So far, we have no evidence that treatment is less successful if we have a second pseudomonas infection versus a first ever pseudomonas infection. Therefore, there's not necessarily a need to be more aggressive in the treatment approach and using the same treatment strategy, which is inhaled antibiotics alone, will be likely successful in this patient. Again, also using a longer regimen would not necessarily make sense. What do we know about why this patient became reinfected with pseudomonas? Well, overall, all CF patients have a risk of developing pseudomonas infection. And even if you treat it successfully at some point in time, it doesn't mean that the overall risk of getting pseudomonas will go away. In this case, since there was about a year between the first infection and the subsequent infection, of course, always the question will come up, has this patient ever cleared the pseudomonas, yes or no? And for that, it's important to rely on multiple cultures, as I mentioned before. In addition, there are some risk factors that we know make it more likely that a patient gets pseudomonas infection, and those involve issues such as severe genotypes and also more significant lung disease. But overall, every CF patient has a risk of developing pseudomonas infection, so it can always happen again. Are there environmental factors involved in pseudomonas reacquisition? Yeah, there are multiple sources in the environment where patients can acquire pseudomonas. And in a given patient, it is always difficult to find out where this actually has happened. We know that standing water or wells are potential sources of pseudomonas. But there can be other issues, such as nebulizers that are used can be contaminated with bacteria, such as pseudomonas. And sometimes there are family members with airway diseases that could have pseudomonas. That's overall less likely, but can happen in individual cases. And overall, what we tell patients is that pseudomonas is basically everywhere in the environment. So completely avoiding any contact to pseudomonas is virtually impossible. Before you attempt eradication again, how important is it to know whether this is the same subspecies of pseudomonas or a different variant? Well, scientifically, it's an interesting question, but for clinical purposes, you don't necessarily need to know that. It's always difficult to completely define whether an infection that we have in a patient with cystic fibrosis is a new infection or an infection that has been there before. In clinical studies, what we have used is to say that a patient has to be free of pseudomonas for at least a year to consider it a new or early infection with pseudomonas. But in the studies, we have also implemented the rules that we need at least two cultures per year, and ideally more than that, in order to make that case. 
So if that's not the case, then we have used longer time intervals up to two years in order to clarify that a patient actually has a new infection. We have a number of studies that have been done in the past that have shown that in the majority of cases, it's actually a new genotype of pseudomonas that you find in this setting, which would support the idea that it's a new acquisition versus persistence of the um, pseudomonas over time. But in the management of a given patient, it doesn't necessarily help. Following either an initial or a reattempted eradication, how do you determine success? In clinical practice, we would like to see multiple cultures over a period of a year, ideally four or more, to clarify whether a patient is free of pseudomonas. And as I mentioned before, in a situation where you had a recent infection, we always encourage patients to bring in multiple samples over the period of the first six months after the infection, just to give us a better feeling and better clarity of whether pseudomonas has actually been cleared. Is there evidence that a pseudomonas reinfection is any more or less severe than the initial infection? So if we think about infection of pseudomonas, then usually our treatment, as I mentioned before, is based on culture positivity. That can be a situation where actually pseudomonas only colonizes the airways and doesn't necessarily cause symptoms of an infection. And that is usually the situation for the second positive culture that you find after first initial therapy, very similar to the situation that you find the first time around. So the short answer for that is no. There's no evidence to suggest that the second time is any different from the first time, either in terms of severity or in terms of success rate of therapy. Uh, thank you, doctor. Oh, we've got time for one more patient, so if you would, please. Okay, so this patient will be seven years of age, and let's say it's a female patient. And in this case, we have the situation that there have been two courses of inhaled tobramycin inhalation solution. And despite these two courses of tobramycin inhalation solution, the patient is still positive for pseudomonas infection. After failing two attempts at eradication, uh, many clinicians would just sort of throw up their hands and say, I give up on eradication. This is a chronic infection. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think that at this time point, it's still too early to say that this is chronic infection. It may just be that our current treatment regimens have failed. And because, as I mentioned before, so far we have used the same therapy twice, but we haven't tried any other forms of therapy. But I also need to say that the transition between initial or early infection and chronic infection is not entirely clear, especially as we intervene with therapy. Other forms of therapy. Uh, talk to us about those, if you would, please. What does the evidence say? So at this stage of infection, we have relatively little evidence for the efficacy of different treatment strategies. What I mean by that is we have little comparative data to suggest that one treatment strategy is necessarily better than another. However, our own data suggests that there's still a chance that you can clear pseudomonas at this point in time. And I think this will be a challenge for us in the future to define the best strategy that we can use at this point in time. And we know that so far the data that we have is based on relatively small numbers. And that is due to the case that overall eradication therapy is highly successful. So the rates of failure become smaller and smaller if you look at situations like this, where you look at a patient that has failed two courses of therapy.
and your experience with different eradication regimens? Okay, so in our own center, our regimen is to use intravenous antibiotics at this point in time in combination with inhaled therapy. But there could be other forms of therapies that could be used, such as another inhaled antibiotic. And there are certainly data that came out recently that inhaled as trionam is overall efficacious as a therapy for pseudomonas eradication. But I have to say in this setting, it has not been studied. What about the use of oral antibiotics, like the quinolones? Well, we don't have a lot of evidence that oral quinolones add anything to the success rate of inhaled antibiotics alone in eradication therapy. But most of that evidence comes from treatment of the first infection or a reoccurrence after a period of being free, which we call early infection. In a situation like that, some people would use oral quinolones as an option for therapy. We would not because we feel at this point in time we want to maximize therapy, and this is why we become relatively aggressive and use IV antibiotics. There are no data that I'm aware of that using a quinolone at this point in time in association with inhaled antibiotics or quinolone alone would be of any benefit. But at least for the regimen that we are using with intravenous antibiotics, we have some data that in about a third of the patients, we can still clear pseudomonas at this point in time. Uh, Those IV antibiotics, what would your agents of choice be? Well, in a situation like this, we are usually dealing with a highly sensitive strain of pseudomonas. And our first treatment choice would be the combination of using ceftazidem and tobramycin intravenously for a period of 14 days. We would then add on an inhaled antibiotic for another 28 days after the completion of the IV therapy and then reassess the patient about a week after the inhaled therapy course has stopped. Is there any evidence describing the use of inhaled antibiotics at the same time as IV antibiotics? There's no evidence either in chronic infection or early infection with pseudomonas that adding on inhaled antibiotics at the same time as intravenous antibiotics increases the benefit or the success rate of therapy. So we are not using them at the same time. The other issue is that currently our regimen is to use tobramycin inhalation solution as an inhaled antibiotic for first line of therapy and also in this setting of patients who have failed previous courses of therapy. And using IV antibiotics with tobramycin on one hand and inhaled tobramycin on the other hand at the same time increases the risk of side effects. So since we don't have any evidence of increased benefit and there's a higher risk of side effects, we would not use this in our regimen. Thank you, Dr. Ratchin, for today's cases and discussion. I want to ask you to look into the future for us. What are the next steps to improve early pseudomonas eradication? Well, I think what we've seen so far is that we learned that being more aggressive initially does not seem to make a lot of sense because if we use longer courses of therapy, it does not necessarily increase the success rate. So in a way, I feel that we have to learn from what oncology has learned from their protocols, that once you're at the point where your initial therapy is highly successful, then you have to de-escalate this therapy and make it as simple and short as possible. And I think we are already at this point in terms of using inhalation therapy alone for eradication and relatively short courses of 28 days for this initial therapy.
I think what we need to focus in the future on is to stratify patients according to risk. And that's very similar to oncology, where patients are not necessarily all treated the same, but that we learn more about patient groups that have a higher risk of failure and that we would treat those differently. And that we use protocols to see if we do that, will we increase the success rate of therapy. The other thing that we need to focus on is to study rescue therapy that we've talked about a couple of minutes ago, which is basically protocols for those patients that have failed initial or repeated courses of eradication therapy. This is more challenging in terms of study design, but also very important because we have to be clear of what we should do at this time point in order to maximize the chances that we clear pseudomonas, even at the later time point in the game when we had multiple courses that have already been attempted. Which current studies do you find most interesting? So there are two larger studies that are currently ongoing, one in Europe and one in the United States. Let's start with the study that is happening in the U.S., which is called the optimized trial. So the optimized trial will ask the question to whether if you add on azithromycin to inhaltobromycin alone, does that increase the success rate of eradication and also reduce clinically relevant endpoints such as the rate of pulmonary exacerbations? So this is what optimize will try to address and the study is already unrolling. The other study that is done in Europe, or more specifically in the United Kingdom, is called the torpedo study. And in the torpedo study, they will compare using intravenous antibiotic therapy as a first-line therapy for patients with first or early infection versus using the combination of ciprofloxacin and colistin, which is commonly used in Europe and is an off-label application of colistin. And in this study, they will try to see whether using IV as a first-line therapy will increase the success rate of treatment. Unfortunately, ideally, we would like to see a comparison of IV therapy to inhaltobromycin, which is the first-line therapy in most countries around the world. So there will be some open questions even if the study has been completed. Thank you for sharing your insights, Doctor. Let's wrap things up by reviewing what we talked about today in light of our learning objectives. Uh, so to begin, the available options to treat early pseudomonas infection. So we have different options to treat first pseudomonas or early pseudomonas infection, and they include inhaled antibiotics alone, which is inhaled tobamycin, or as a newer option, inhaled estrionam, as well as adding on ciprofloxacin as an oral agent or to use intravenous antibiotics. As I explained to you, the best evidence currently is available for inhaled tobamycin, and there's no added benefit that we know of from adding on any other therapy to that. And our second objective, deciding whether treatment should be repeated in patients who develop recurrence of infection. Okay, based on the evidence that we have, the answer is absolutely yes. Patients who have repeated infection with pseudomonas should be treated again, and so far, the evidence suggests that the success rate is very similar because it's likely a new infection with pseudomonas rather than reoccurrence of the same organism. Uh, and finally, potential treatment options for patients failing eradication therapy. So for patients failing eradication therapy, 
we would suggest that you shouldn't give up after two courses of the same regimen, which usually is inhaled tobramycin, but try a different regimen. In our center, we use intravenous antibiotics at that point, followed by a course of inhaled antibiotics. But there are other options that could potentially be useful, such as using another inhaled antibiotic, such as, as Trionam. Dr. Felix Ratchin from the University of Toronto, thank you for participating in this eCystic Fibrosis Review Podcast. Well, thank you for the opportunity. To receive CME credit for this activity, please take the post-test at www.ecysticfibrosisreview.org forward slash test. This podcast is presented in conjunction with the eCystic Fibrosis Review Newsletter, a peer-reviewed literature review certified for CME CE credit, emailed monthly to clinicians treating patients with cystic fibrosis. This activity has been developed for the CF care team, including pulmonologists, pediatric pulmonologists, gastroenterologists, pediatricians, infectious disease specialists, respiratory therapists, dietitians, nutritionists, pharmacists, nurses and nurse practitioners, physical therapists, and others involved in the care of patients with cystic fibrosis. There are no fees or prerequisites for this activity. This activity has been planned and implemented in accordance with the essential areas and policies of the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education through the joint sponsorship of the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. The Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine is accredited by the ACCME to provide continuing medical education for physicians. The Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine designates this enduring material for a maximum of 0.5 AMA PRA Category 1 credits. Physicians should claim only the credit commensurate with the extent of their participation in this activity. The Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing is accredited as a provider of continuing nursing education by the American Nurses Credentialing Center's Commission on Accreditation. For nurses, this 0.5 contact hour educational activity is provided by the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. Each podcast carries a maximum of 0.5 contact hour. This educational resource is provided without charge, but registration is required. To register to receive eCystic Fibrosis Review via email, please go to our website, www.ecysticfibrosisreview.org. The opinions and recommendations expressed by faculty and other experts whose input is included in this program are their own. This enduring material is produced for educational purposes only. Use of the names of the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing implies review of educational format, design, and approach. Please review the complete prescribing information for specific drugs, combinations of drugs, or use of medical equipment, including indication, contraindications, warnings, and adverse effects before administering therapy to patients. E-Cystic Fibrosis Review is supported by educational grants from AbbVie, Gilead Sciences Incorporated, and Vertex Pharmaceuticals. This program is copyright with all rights reserved by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing.